Welcome to Sundays at Cafe Tabac, the podcast. Hi, I'm Wanda Acosta. Hi, I'm Karen Song. We're the filmmakers of the documentary feature film project of the same name that's still in progress. This podcast series is an extension of our film's mission to affirm and extol the courage, vision, strength, and joy in our LGBTQ community through the preservation and sharing of our personal stories and the collective histories we live through and change. We recently had the honor and great pleasure of speaking with the award-winning author, journalist, educator, and activist, Linda Villarosa. She's a contributing writer and editor for the New York Times Magazine, the New York Times at Large, and its Science Times, where she covers race, inequality, and health. She authored three books, was the former executive editor of Essence Magazine, and is the current director of the journalism program at the City College of New York, where she teaches reporting, writing, and black studies. You might have also heard her recently in the New York Times The Daily Podcast, reporting on the deadly racial disparities of COVID in America. Linda shares with us here her truly inspiring and uniquely public coming out story. I had two big coming outs. So the first was when I was in college and I had fallen in love with a woman and um, while I was in college and was so over the moon, I realized, oh, this is who I am. I had no idea I could feel this way. I went to the University of Colorado at Boulder, so a giant school. I wasn't in a fishbowl. It's just like no one really knew too much except me and her. And then, um, you know, I lived not far from where I grew up in Denver, but far enough so that I wasn't very close to my family. She and I had been together for about several months, and we went on vacation to San Francisco. I had never been to San Francisco. I had never, you know, experienced some traveling with someone that you love. So I was just, when I came back, I was so crazy happy. So I went home um, and I was excited to tell my parents about the trip. So I'm like, blah, 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 going on and on about how much fun I had. And I tried these new coffees and these, you know, ate food and drinks and things I hadn't seen in San Francisco. And my mother's like, yeah, okay. So what is going on with you? Are you a lesbian? (laughs) And my girlfriend was a grown woman. I was 19. She was my um, 30-something college writing instructor and white, red flag for my mother. (laughs) What are you doing traveling with your college instructor, writing instructor? I was not subtle. So my mom is trained as a psychotherapist. So she is both very um, insightful and observant and blunt. And so she was not fooling around with this because it was kind of clear that this was not just my friend. So that's why she saw through me, you know, sort of like, oh, yeah, I had such a good time with my friend in San Francisco. She's like, what is going on? (laughs) Right away, right to the chase. My partner at the time and I had spoken and she said, point blank, if your family asks you if you are gay, lie. Do not tell the truth. They are not ready to hear it. It'll be too hard for you to manage. When my mother confronted me like that, I forgot everything, did not lie. I'm not good at that. I'm bad at lying to my mother, especially. And I was just like, yes, that began a very difficult five years, probably struggle with my mother. And I, you know, her basically saying this cannot be, this is a mistake. 
you don't understand. You're just young. It's a phase. It'll go away. Why are you doing this to me? I mean, every, she tried every single thing. I sort of stuck with her. I pulled away from her somewhat, stopped coming home as much. Eventually, I moved from the University of Colorado, and I graduated and moved to New York City. So my family and I had a bit more breathing room. My mother and I had more breathing room. And at one point, I remember I was in New York City, and I needed my mother. And I had been going through some, you know, that initial partner and I weren't together, and I was seeing someone, and there was some problem. And I called my mother, and I kind of forgot that she was mad at me, and just blah, crying, told her the story. And my mother was so wonderful and so helpful. And it was a turning point for her, because she realized that this, I'm just the same person. I have the same kinds of problems. I'm, you know, into women, but I am still her daughter and I still rely on her and need her. And she's still valuable to me as a source of comfort, support, advice. And it kind of changed our relationship. And we stopped having whatever tension we were having. I could talk to her more openly and she just let go of the preconceptions that she had about me and just did a really good job of accepting me for who I was. Our families are often the oasis, the, you know, safe place for a community for people who are subject to oppression and marginalization. So your family becomes this place where it's like, oh my goodness, this is my home. These are people who love me. So I think many of us, and myself included, become super fearful if we're worried about rejection. And also our families, what may seem like rejection is really fear about our safety. So I remember hearing from a lot of people, including my mother early on, to say, I don't want you to be um, a lesbian because you won't be safe. You'll be harmed. You'll be discriminated against even more. On top of the oppression we have to deal with as women, now you're going to add this other layer on. And so I think that that reads as homophobia, but it's much more textured. It is a fear for our safety. And on our side, it's a fear that we will be rejected and we'll have no home, so to speak, no place to go, no one who loves us. But I think it's harder for us because we have used our family and community as a safe space and safe haven. Fast forward, about 10 years later, I got to Essence Magazine. And I was uh, the senior editor for health. At Essence, on um, Tuesdays, we'd have our center of the book meetings. And this was like a marathon of deciding what would be in the issues of the magazine. And at that time, it was a time of self-revelation. I mean, now too, but really it was kind of new then. And people were writing about their personal experiences. So there was a woman who wrote about her miscarriage, how she dealt with the death of her mother. Um, Another one, she found out her husband had been unfaithful and she wrote about that. And the editor-in-chief really set the stage, Susan Taylor, and she had written about being in an abusive marriage and how she got over that. She had written about, you know, her upbringing and her daughter. And it was really a time where people were writing a lot in the first person. Everyone except me. I was not having part of these conversations because I had hadn't told them the truth about my sexuality. So even though I was thrilled to be at this black magazine in this sort of sorority of black women journalists, 
I was not part of this sisterhood of talking about your life and your family and your love and your feelings. Um, and I was just silent. I was kind of like people saw me as super serious, very nerdy. Eventually, I realized I'm making my experience at Essence someplace I really wanted to be negative because I was being so nervous and closeted. And the turning point for me came when we had a weekend retreat of the editors. And it was really a weekend of people talking about their personal lives and themselves and coming up with article ideas. And I was not part of it. And so I was driving home with the editor-in-chief, Susan, who was really you know, just like very talking about, oh, wasn't the retreat wonderful? And I'm thinking, well, not for me. I was just sitting there and she turns to me and she said, you know, something like you seem a little lonely. I have someone I'd like you to meet, my brother-in-law. I think you'd be perfect. And I just looked at her, she's driving her car. And I said, I'm a lesbian. I just blurted it out. (laughs) She's like, what? (laughs) And so I told her the whole story and she was wonderful. She was really accepting. That brother-in-law of hers is now one of my best friends. She was right. We we're perfect for each other as friends. She was just really wonderful, accepting. So on Monday, I went in and told everyone the truth. Just went to their offices one by one and said, I need to tell you this thing. I told Susan and it was great. That led to a few meetings later, I was talking about my relationship with my mother and how difficult it was for me to come out. And, you know, I could see everyone looking at me going, hey, why don't you write about that? And I still wasn't, initially wasn't really comfortable with that, but they talked me into it. At first, I was just going to have my mother write her part, and then I would just edit it. And then they said, no, this is a should be a dialogue between you and your mother. And we did that story. It appeared in the Mother's Day issue of Essence, I think it was 1991, And it was a huge success. We got hate mail and we got some negative feedback, but most of it was positive. And for many, many, many years, it was the most responded to article in the history of Essence. And we did two follow-ups. And I did a follow-up with my mother and my children a couple of decades later. My father is very accepting, but he was really nervous about my career and thinking I had made a mistake. My mother and I had made a mistake writing this story because he's like, you know, there's 8 million people that are going to see your personal business and you're probably going to, you know, be in jeopardy of losing your job. And so I was kind of scared about that. I was like, oh no, everybody, this is true. But in fact, the opposite happened. So eventually I got promoted and I became the executive editor of Essence Magazine. I also was thrust into the public eye. I joined the the National Lesbian and Gay Journalists Association, which was brand new at the time. I got recruited to join, recruited to be on the board of it. And also I was the keynote speaker at the first national convention along with Andrew Sullivan, Angelo Signorelli, and Randy Schultz, the late Sarah Pettit. We shared the stage at that. So again, you know, that was a huge deal that was covered by the media. And I think that was really important for my career. I met different kinds of people who, through networking in that organization, that really eventually led me to the New York Times. This coming out also helped my writing. I think I was always trying to sound so much like the voice of whatever publication I was writing for, mainly Essence, later the New York Times. 
But then, you know, at some point I was able to feel comfortable enough with myself so that I could have my own voice. So I wasn't writing in the voice of these publications. I was, you know, discovering how I sounded in print. And that has been very important to me and it's important to me still. My relationship with my mother now is, you know, wonderful. We were just talking about this yesterday. I was reminding her that she was very, very accepting of me when I came out. But then she was kind of like, well, you know, all right, you're a lesbian and all. So how am I going to get some grandchildren? So I took care of that. I gave her two grandchildren, her beloved grandchildren. And um, it's like one thing is to have a queer daughter. And then you got your grandchildren. But now both of them are queer. Um, she's fine. She's just about love and family. And she's very funny because my son's partner goes by they. And so she gets a <laughs> pass <laughs> to sometimes say him because we know she's doing her best to try to work with the language and, and to just be relevant and on top of things in this moment of change. And she does very well. She's really smart and she really cares about current issues and events, but she mostly just cares about us. She really values her relationship with me, with my partner, with my sister as well, and my children, and even the children's father. She calls him her son-in-law. So people are super confused. They're like, don't you have two daughters? Who is your, isn't one of them a lesbian and one's not married? Who is your son-in-law? <laughs> She's just like, whatever, he's my son-in-law. So that's it. Wow, what a story. We really enjoyed our interview with Linda during the filming of our Sundays at Cafe Tabac documentary. She's just such a wonderful storyteller. And one of the topics she articulated so well during our shoot was how the coming out movement of the 80s and 90s as a defiant form of visibility in LGBTQ activism became a movement in the necessity to combat AIDS. In this recent interview with Linda for this podcast, we checked in to find out how she saw her own lineage of activism reflected in today's environment amidst COVID and the Black Lives Matter movement. And what she was able to share with us affirmed the importance of the work of the past to organize, build, and ignite into future movements and the importance of envisioning a future built through the efforts of an intergenerational coalition. Now let's hear more from Linda. I love reporting. I'm very interested in Black issues, race and health and inequality. I'm interested in LGBTQ issues as they intersect with health and race. And because I'm comfortable with who I am, I feel comfortable and happy reporting in these spaces. I am part of these communities that I care about so much and I'm able to report on them. And I was writing about HIV AIDS in the, in the 80s. And so, I mean, it's horrible that I'm still writing about it, but I feel like I have an accumulation of knowledge and experience to really cover some of these topics deeper. And I'm one of many. And um, many of us know each other and work together as a community of people who are writers, the epidemiologists. We know they're my sources. I know these people. <laughs> many of them are Black and gay like me. And it's really important that we pool resources and um, share knowledge and ideas and talent. And I'm glad I'm part of this wider community of people who care about these issues. Some of us have been activists for a really long time. And some of us have been activists in both 
spaces around race, whether it was, you know, the precursors to the movement for Black Lives or being involved in HIV AIDS activism and, you know, advocacy or being involved in LGBTQ activism and advocacy or the coming out movement. So we are people who are grounded in knowing what to do, how to protest, you know, how to get what you need, how to speak up, how to fight back. And so I think it's very interesting because many of the people who were on the front lines in the past are still on the front lines now, are joining a new movement of queer activists, of Black activists and queer Black activists and other people of color in this current moment. And I'm really amazed to see some, you know, because it's sort of sometimes we think, oh, it's young people who are going to change the world. I actually don't believe that. I think it's all of us who have to change the world. Both my children are queer and they are, you know, they grew up going to gay pride and going to black women's marches and going to the women's march and, you know, just being involved in activism. And these kids are leaders in their schools and in their groups because of the experience of growing up in this. This kind of super interesting thing happened with COVID. So at the beginning of COVID, so let's call it in March 2020, there were no statistics coming out around people of color being more likely to both be exposed to COVID and then to get sick, hospitalized, and die from it. Although behind the scenes, all of us knew, who were in public health, knew this was going to be the case. First, there was a lot of activism behind the scenes to say, federal government, put out these statistics. We know you have them. And so then slowly in early April, they rolled out. Then it was interesting, a month later, a really good data set came out about exposure to COVID that people of color, especially black people, were more likely to be exposed, hospitalized, and die from it. So I'm looking, I'm saying, wow, this is really good. It's not just in cities, it's in rural areas. It's very complete. So I say, who did this study? AMFAR, the American um, AIDS Research Foundation, which has nothing to do with COVID. It's an AIDS organization. So I was like, what individuals did this? It was led by a Black queer man, Greg Millette, Gregorio Millette, who used to work in HIV AIDS back in the day with the White House, now is at AMFAR, gathered up many queer people, many Black people, and you know some just old uh, former people who worked in AIDS or still do. And translated their knowledge to COVID. And I thought this is the gold standard of using people who know about another infectious disease that also discriminated against people of color and queer people and, and using that knowledge and putting it onto this new scary disease rather than reinvent the wheel. And that is what we need to acknowledge that many of us know about this, have um, experience and have talent and expertise in these areas, whether it's infectious disease or activism, and we need to be lifted up and supported. Thank you for listening. For more, subscribe to Sundays at Cafe Tabac, the podcast. You can also learn more about us and our film at cafetobacfilm.com and at Cafe Tabac Film on social media. Please share your thoughts there on social media. And if you have a coming out story you'd like to share for a possible feature here, reach out to us. Stay tuned for episode five of Sundays at Cafe Tabac, the podcast. <laughs>